welcome everyone to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And on today's episode, we have a, an incredibly talented author um, and professor, Chip Heath. Dr. Chip Heath is just an amazing, thoughtful individual uh, who's written, he's a world-renowned author, best-selling author. Him and his brother have written four life-changing books. Uh, one of them is called Made to Stick. Another one is Switch. Another one is Divisive. And the most recent one uh, with his brother, Dan, was The Power of Moments. For me, his book, Switch, that uh, I read probably 10 or more years ago, uh, was really pivotal uh, pivotal in my life of helping me break some of my poor habits, as well as helping me change in my life, as well as uh, organization I was working with. And so if you're someone who's kind of felt like you're stuck in a rut or someone, you know, we talked this to Chip about it a little bit, but if you're someone who has struggled with just seeing the, the gaps and the flaws versus the bright spots as Chip refers into them. Um, this is a great conversation for you to dive into. We spend today's, most of today's episode diving into his latest book called Making Numbers Count. And uh, while it is math focused, you know, because he's talking about numbers, it is so enlightening for whether you like math, whether you like numbers or not. One of the things that I appreciate that he talks about is um, for the longest time there, were many uh, places where there wasn't a number really to think about above five, but anything above five was lots, um, which is crazy to, to, to try to comprehend. So uh, he breaks down ways for us to help be more engaged in numbers, to help learn numbers better, but also to make them more meaningful and relevant to our lives. So that was that's a really cool part of the conversation. We start off diving in on his journey, you know, to start as a graduate of Texas A&M University in industrial engineering, to work his way up to a PhD in psychology, that seems interesting to me. Uh, and then now that he's a, a professor at Stanford Graduate School of Business and a world-renowned author, I mean, just it's a really cool life journey. So we, we dive into those parts. We also talk about, you know, when he's had ruts in his life, like we all can have, what are some of those um, strategies he's had in his life to help him break out of that? And then lastly, as we're interested in, in all of our guests, like how are they successful, how they created meaningful change in their life, we dive into uh, what have been those keys for him and his, his when i asked him the question about what habit or discipline uh, he has that's helped him make be successful he has a really unique answer and it's something that i would just encourage you to stay tuned in on because i was fascinated by his take on that um just the paradigm of it as well as his specific answer so chip uh dr heath he wants me to call him chip which i can't think of enough for uh is very down to earth so so smart and thoughtful um, and so this is just one of those kind of fireside chat conversations where I felt like I got smarter and was taking my own personal notes as I was going through the conversation. So uh, I'm, I'm confident you will enjoy it, whether you like numbers or not. It's a really interesting conversation. And Chip Heath is an amazingly talented and thoughtful individual. Um, so thank you. Enjoy this conversation. It is great. Again, if you uh, have not hit the subscribe button, please subscribe. And however you listen to it, your your loyal listenership is incredibly important to us. I'm so thankful for it. Um, so enjoy. Chip, uh, Mr. Heath, I don't know, Dr. Heath, what, what, what can I call you? I mean, you're a doctor. Chip is great. Okay. <laughs> you're you're uh, very disarming. And so uh, we'll just, I can't believe I get to call you Chip. So Chip, thank you for joining us today. I appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. So the first question, well, first, before we start, uh, I think I'm supposed to say howdy. Is that correct? Howdy. Howdy. Uh, so my, my nephew, uh, Jack Reed, is a 
junior, I think by hours at Texas A&M. And he is a proud, proud, proud Aggie. And it's pretty been yes. pretty awesome to see him uh, just flourish there and see the community there. And so uh, I've been told that I just need to start by saying howdy. So it's good That's to good. have you. You're a good Texan now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I went to SMU in Dallas, Texas. Oh, okay. Well, it's a different I, I, kind of Texan. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, all right. So uh, with that, uh, our first question we ask everybody, Chip, is who are you and what do you love about what you do? I'm a professor at Stanford University. I teach in the business school. And what I love about what I do is I get to talk to people about ideas that they're interested in using to transform the world. And, and the way that most of them do it is by forming an organization of some kind. It could be a nonprofit, but it could be a business. And I love the process of helping somebody take an idea that's, that's in their mind, but they haven't really articulated it to others and helping them get that out into the world in a way that persuades others and, and brings resources to bear on their idea and helps them gain momentum. So I feel like there's, there's a number of folks who would say, a similar passion would be like, I just want to help people improve their lives in the world, but you've done it honestly in so many different ways. And one of the questions I have is, you know, to start with the howdy at Texas A&M, you, you, I think you studied industrial engineering in college. Yeah. I, I'm just curious when you were leaving college, was that answer on your heart? Were you thinking, how do I change the world for people and organizations? Um, and if not, yeah. what were you thinking you would do with your life at that point? Well, I, I thought I wanted to teach. And so somewhere around my junior year at Texas A&M University, I decided I wanted to be a teacher. And I, I, first I thought I wanted to be a high school teacher. And I looked into it and it turns out with the credentialing and the courses that you have to take, it would have taken me another three years <laughs> to come up with my teaching credential for high school in the state of Texas. And I looked at it and said, well, three years for that, four years for a PhD, I think it may go with the PhD. And so, so that's where I took off and went to Stanford, got my PhD in psychology, did a lot of work with economics. And so it was part of the, part of the crowd that was thinking about the issues that became known as behavioral economics. And now I generated two Nobel prizes for people in our field. Wow. And, and that was a, a very, very meaningful shift for me between between doing the teaching for high school and doing teaching at the college and university level because I'm I'm persuaded that I had great teachers as as a high school student and junior high school student and I'm not sure I appreciated what they were doing as much as I should have. <laughs> we we've actually talked to a few folks um, about uh, kind of our maturation as learners and as people and so many uh, of the guests we've had, whether it's been on camera or off camera, I've talked similarly about how, how could I have really uh, cherished my uh, teachers earlier in my career, particularly in high school. Um, what, what drove you, you know, from, again, from an outsider's perspective, it looks like you go from industrial engineering to studying psychology. What, what drove that passion and focus to go after a PhD in psychology versus anything else. Yeah, I, I initially thought about teaching engineering and that was kind of boring. Um, and then I thought about social sciences. I, I looked at history and, and took some advanced history classes in, in other areas and, and that was appealing, but economics captured my interest in a serious way because it was systematic like engineering was. In fact, I learned more about analysis. I think more about calculus and how calculus works to help generate predictions in my economic class than I ever did in any of my engineering classes. But, but the thing that struck me the most was 
I stumbled across this kind of psychology called cognitive psychology. And there was an autobiography by one of the founders of the field, Jerome Bruner. And I read it and I was just riveted. It's all the things that I'd always been thinking about because cognitive psychology is about thinking and, and learning and memory and, and decision-making. And how do, we, how do we put all these things together in our mind? And that was just so, so exciting to me. And I'd always thought of psychology as kind of Dear Abby, who was the vice columnist of the time, and Freud. And I wasn't in love with either the endpoints of that continuum, but the cognitive psychology was was like coming home. And so I, I finished, I did an undergraduate thesis in cognitive psychology and applied to graduate schools and was lucky enough to get into Stanford. I mean, lucky enough, yes, uh, that's a, a life-changing place. I mean, you, so as a professor, you go, you go to, you know, you get your PhD, you know, you want to become a professor, I assume. And, you know, you've taught at some of the schools that I've, you know, con- was considered going to earlier in my career uh, that are, world-class organization, you know, University of Chicago, I believe, uh, I think you thought at Fuqua, at Duke, yeah. uh, now, you know, at GSB at Stanford, which is, again, a thought leader for the world. Um, there's many people, again, who would be uh, satisfied at doing those things and making that their impact, but you decided to become an author. Can I ask, what was that impetus? How did you decide, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write my first book, yeah, it was, it was actually our editor that acquired the project for our publisher the first time around, um, it was Ben Lennon. And, and so I had been teaching a course at Stanford on the marketplace of ideas. And one of the things that frustrated me about, about the world was that we have things like urban legends and rumors that propagate from person to person kind of instantaneously and automatically. And, and yet we can't get across public health messages in a way that, that gets junior high kids not to pick up smoking. And so, so I was fascinated by those issues. And I had done a, a talk for a Silicon Valley group as a breakfast. And the theme was what we can learn from urban legends about messaging. And, and my editor, Ben Lennon, saw the account of that talk and wrote me a letter and said, I think this could be a book. And so I had had in my mind that it'd be interesting to write a book about this sometime, but I don't think I would have done it at that time uh, without that. And I, I appealed to my brother, who is a great writer, uh, to join me on the project and be a co-author. And that was the best decision I've ever made because it was he's a great writer. I, I take no credit for the written words of our books, but, mm. but in working with that, working with him on that has been one of the best family bonding experiences I can imagine. Well, that, that was the second question is that, you know, I, I find, especially with writing, um, you know, even like I go back to like when I was in school, just writing, you know, a paper is a really vulnerable experience. Like you put it out there and your teacher is going to grade you. I mean, writing a book is just infinitely probably more, more of a vulnerable uh, experience is, so it sounds like you, you, you know, usually I would want to do that by myself. You said, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to find my brother who is incredibly talented as a writer. Um, was that scary going into it or was that something that like, it just makes sense because you have your strengths, he has his strengths, this will come together and be brilliant. I, I think we had some skepticism. In fact, we had, our mom had to do an intervention at one point um, because, because he, I'm the kind of person that likes to get advanced on the material and, and nail it 
down and, and so I would study all semester and in the finals week I'd read a science fiction novel because all I had to do is stay calm in between tasks because I'd prepare as much as I want to. Dan would start a paper major assignment at, at 2 a.m. after watching The Simpsons for a couple of hours and and he would nail it. He would he'd get A pluses on his assignments but he was always a last minute kind of guy and and so Mom, at one point, we were, we were doing things, and I was getting further and further ahead in outline, outlining chapters that he was going to write. And, and so we were getting frustrated with each other, and Mom said, you know, Dan, Dan has this pattern that he gets excited at 2 a.m. about the project, and, 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 and he nails it. He nails it every time. And by the way, his grades are better than yours. And so, you know, <laughs> relax and, and enjoy the fact that you've got a brother that's capable of doing this kind of stuff. And that, that, that changed the collaboration. It's just that realization that she had watching the two of us in our patterns um, was, was useful. And, and so we could, we could label it and we could talk about it as opposed to just get frustrated with each other. As I mentioned in the intro, I mean, that, that partnership has... Uh, led to four best-selling books. I mean, there was Made to Stick, which you were kind of referencing there. Switch, as I told you, is one of the books that has changed my life. If you asked me for you know, a list of five to 10 books that have been the most influential, Switch has been that for me. So if folks are listening, haven't read that, I would encourage you to think about it. Decisive and the Power of Moments, which has been uh, really impactful lately, as you see on social media and other places. Um, it's It's been a great recipe for success. And now... Uh, you've written a book that I'm, I'm a former high school math teacher, so I'm actually pretty excited about the, yeah. the title. Your, your latest book is Making Numbers Count, and you co-authored with uh, Carla Starr. I'm curious, just uh, high level, what, what is this book about and who is it for? So one of the things that Dan and I didn't tackle as much as we wanted to in, in writing a book on making ideas stick um, was the problem of numbers, because so many things in life are numerical. We have numbers in the, in the news that are trillions and billions and millions and nanometers and microseconds and milliseconds. And, and so there are all these units in numbers that our brains are not really familiar with. And the question is, how do you, how do you get across meaning in those numbers given that our brains aren't prepared for doing that? Hmm. And so let me give you a quick example. If you talk about millions versus billions, those are terms that we hear all the time. We know that a billion is bigger than a million, but how much bigger is it? Well, if you're counting off a million seconds, it would take you 12 days to count off a million seconds. How many days would it take to do a billion seconds? It would take 32 years. And that discrepancy, everybody that I've, I've given that comparison to, and it doesn't matter if they're a physicist or a mathematician or a high school math teacher, that hits you in the gut because we didn't know at a visceral level how big, how much bigger a billion was than a million until you translated it into metric that we can understand yep. and and so it turns out that people aren't very well prepared for mathematics in terms of our genetic equipment so we're pretty good at numbers up to about five and so if you're if you're reading a kid's book and you see a picture of three goldfish your brain shouts at it uh, you that there's three there and you don't have to count them you just know that there are three and it's true for four and it's true for five but starting at six and seven things get a little fuzzier and so so people aren't so good at recognizing seven and past 10 or 12, we're, we're just sunk. And, and it turns out also that of all the cultures in the world that have been documented, most cultures have 
names for numbers up to about five. So uno, dos, tres, cuatro, cinco. Those are names in Spanish for number five. And they go on past that. And we go on past that in English. But most of the, the small scale societies that have ever existed in the world, they get by with numbers from one to five. And after, after six, it's lots. You know, so six is lots and seven is lots and 100 million is lots. So you can imagine the difficulty of navigating in those cultures that don't have names for those numbers. It's like, honey, do we have enough eggs for dinner? Well, we got lots of eggs. We got lots of people coming over. We'll see how it goes. And and so, numbers are brilliant cultural innovation, and we're, we're we have the advantage of that. Somebody doing that before us, and all we have to do is learn it. But it does highlight the fact that we're not prepared for numbers in the way that we should be. And so, if we're going to get numbers across, we're going to have to go through a translation process to take an unnatural language, language of numbers, and translate it as if we were in a meeting, we wouldn't throw out a phrase in Japanese or Spanish without translating that phrase for everybody else. And so we had to translate our numbers in the same way. So who who is this book for then? Because I, I when I'm listening, my paradigm first is, uh, you know, a couple ways. One is a former teacher. I taught trigonometry and to think, mm. man, kids weren't even programmed to understand up to five. I don't know, like that kind of rocks my brain of how would I change my teaching understanding some of these concepts. And then as a, a dad of three young kids who are trying to learn math, you know, I, I, that's where my head goes. But as you're writing this, uh, who, who's the audience as you see it? Yeah. And with most of our books, we start out with a kind of dual audience, at least. And for, so for this book, Carl and I were thinking about a high school science teacher or math teacher and probably science teacher. And the other was an entrepreneur that was trying to pitch a business. And so... You've got two people that are taking numbers that an audience is not familiar with, the high school kids that are in the science class and the venture capitalists who might want to invest in the entrepreneur's idea, but they don't necessarily know the market or the, the speeds or the feed rates of the technology in that area. And the question is, how do you get that across in a way that is meaningful to people? Hmm. And so, so, for example, the high school science teacher, you talk about 4.5 light years between us and the nearest solar system. Right. And, and how do you convey that number? Well, one of the techniques for conveying numbers is to put people in a concrete situation where they can imagine a picture of the world that would correspond to the, the situation you're talking about. So, I mean, so imagine you could shrink the solar system down to the size of a quarter. And so the sun's in the middle of the quarter and the planets are on the outskirts. And if you remember the space probe Pioneer, there's a satellite that we launched back in the 60s or 70s that has taken 40 years to get from Earth to exit the solar system. And so each quarter has about 40 radius times 280 years of, of stuff in it. And so you take the quarter and put it down at one end of the field, the soccer field. And you walk to the other end of the soccer field and you put down another quarter. That's four and a half light years. <laughs> and that's a mind-blowing exercise for me. And, and that sense of awe is one that Carl and I, as co-authors, continually found ourselves in awe of what the world had when you understand it through math. And if, if you could give that feeling to students, I think that would change the, the relationship that most of us have with math. So. Here's another simple example. Um, 
many species of frogs can jump many body lengths at times. So these are not these are not specially trained frogs. These are not NBA style professional frog jumpers. They're just regular frogs that jump many body lengths. If you translate it into human terms, what, what would it be like if we could leap many body lengths? Well, some of the best NBA players can dunk from the free throw line. And no NBA player has ever dunked from the three-point line. But if you're a frog, if you had the frog ability to jump multiple line lengths, you could dunk from the other team's three-point line. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, there's, there's a thing that we, don't, we wouldn't think about more than once is just, well, a frog can jump a long way. But if you translate that into a different context, all of a sudden, you get the sense of, wow, the world is a wonderful, wonderful place. And strange things happen in the world. And, and I think that sense of awe is, is a payoff of, of taking numbers seriously. Well, I think, you know, to your point, as a former math teacher, you know, I was already excited about diving into the numbers, but when you make it, you know, use a, a soccer field to describe, hey, this is how far this, this measurement is. And, you know, for me, a former basketball player, you know, the, the free throw line to the other side, like I actually, there's a sense of awe and wonderment in my mind. I was like, oh, that's so fascinating. And so yeah. I go from like learning to like really trying to be a sponge and soak it in. And yeah. you, you might've uh, touched on a few of them, but the, the ones that I kind of pulled out, which, you know, that uh, some of the principles that you talked about are like simple perspective cues, vividness, convert to a process and emotional measuring sticks. Uh, which ones, I'd like to understand which, which one is which uh, to walk out of here. So simple perspective cues, which one was that? Was that the quarter? Now, simple perspective cues is even simpler than that, the quarter, because that's a fairly elaborate setup that I had to give for, <laughs> for that. But simple perspective cues is just, if you looked up the area of Pakistan, the geographic area of Pakistan, it'd be 340,000 square miles. Yep. That doesn't help you much unless you're geography person that's used to interpreting land areas of, of political units. Um, but if you say that 340,000 square, square miles is the size of two Californias, that simple cue puts in perspective what you're learning. It puts it in terms that American at least can understand what's going on. Um, the great wildfires that struck Australia a few years back that burned so many, so many square miles of territory those were the size of two Portugals, or if you're from the States, the size of Washington state, or the size of New England states. You know, those are three different comparisons that could give you purchase on uh, a particular notions, fact, statistic. And there's some very clever researchers at Bing and Microsoft that started giving people perspective cues when they would look up facts. And all of a sudden, recall rates and ability to recall and use data doubled with just one of those simple perspective cues. And it, two Californias is actually a pretty good perspective cue because it's a small number and it's a well-known object, but you could, you could have done five Oklahomas and you still get this doubling benefit of, of the, the cues. And so the first piece of advice is when you're translating numbers, do something. You know, it doesn't have to be the perfect thing. It doesn't have to be the perfect comparison, but whatever comparison you give people to put things in perspective and context, that's gonna help because otherwise numbers don't click onto our, our brains very well. And we're, we're left with, with things floating around in the ether. Yeah, I think that one, you know, honestly, I, I would say 
So I'm an avid reader of a periodical, a week periodical, The Economist. And mm. uh, as much as I love it and geek out on it, uh, you know, journalists could absolutely use that uh, tool. And every time they're driving numbers, just to have that beat into the under understanding of like, every time I put a number, how do I put something simple that people can make it sticky for folks, right? Yeah. That create impact. That's, that's incredibly helpful. Uh, the second one was vividness. Um, and again, you may have hit on them. I'm just trying to understand each concept. So uh, what is the vividness principle? Vividness, in common usage, it means something that's very striking or color or shiny bling kind of stuff. But what it means for us is just make it tangible and concrete and immediate for people. And so one of my favorite examples in the book is Carla was taking a science class in her junior high school years, and they were talking about the problem of polluted water and how much water do we actually have to drink in the world? Because the world is made of water. We, we, should, we could think pollution is not a big deal. Um, but it turns out 97.5% of the water in the world is salinated. It's in oceans. And, and of the remaining 2.5%, 99% of that is tied up in ice, ice so frozen tundra or icebergs and the polar ice caps. And so the remaining 0.0025%, we can drink all of that as long as we don't pollute it. And so those numbers give you a sense that there's not much water out there. But what the teacher did is go further and create a tangible, vivid image of that exercise. He said, imagine a gallon, of, a gallon jug of milk, if you fill it up with salt water. And at the top, you float three ice cubes. And there are some drops of water that are streaming off those ice cubes. That's the amount of fresh water that we have in the world. It's those few drops of water off the ice cubes at the top of the, the gallon jug of salt water. Wow. And Carla said that it, it, made, it made all the difference for her as a seventh grader in talking conversation at cocktail parties with adults that her family would have over. Because all of a sudden she had, she had interesting science information about a relevant topic that's relevant to discussion. And she took great pride in, in telling about that analogy. And so that's pretty good. It's a good day's work for a science teacher when you've got seventh graders interacting with adults on a scientific issue and feeling confident and, and like an expert. And that's the advantage of vivid information is it sticks in our mind and we can work with it in a way that, that transforms how we approach the, the situation. Well, I think to your point, I mean, yes, one, and, and most importantly, probably is like really retaining the information, but two, just using that example, um, it, it provides urgency, right? Like I see myself thinking, man, that's all we have. And what, you know, it just makes the problem very real, um, which is, which is really powerful. All right. So third one, I could geek out all day on this, uh, convert to a process. What's that about? Well, let me, let me put you, cause you mentioned emotion and one of the follow-ups to what you just said is that is that because the vivid example, there's more emotion in that and more, more of a willingness to tackle something. And I think that's, that's an important thought is that numbers not only have to help us understand the situation, they have to help us understand why we care about that situation. Mm -hmm. And so when you're saying it motivates me to, to go out and do something about it or to at least foster the conversation or, or contribute to people who are trying to deal with the problem, those are all motivational aspects of an emotional reaction to the number. And, and it's important to remember that our numbers have to provide motivation in many situations and, 
and how to do that is an important problem. And so, so we'll get to your process in a second, but let me give you an example of an emotional case. Sepsis is a huge problem, a killer of people, in, especially in hospital settings. And most people know that heart attacks and strokes are big killers, you know, cancer is a big killer. Sepsis is right up there with those and nobody's thought about it or heard about it very often. Um, and so Kaiser Permanente in California came up with a procedure for reducing sepsis deaths that saved 55% of the people that wound up with sepsis. And what that would translate to in if every hospital in the country implemented it is savings of 149,000 people. Now that's a big number and it seems pretty important, but putting that in perspective, in borrowing the emotion from other domains, what that means is if you could implement this procedure at every hospital in America, you would save the same number of people as if you could save every woman with breast cancer and every man with prostate cancer. Now, by adding those two comparisons and putting them together, all of a sudden I think we've got more motivation because everybody can understand the infrastructure. We've all been on breast cancer walks. We've, we've worn blue ribbons and red ribbons, pink ribbons and and so we have an infrastructure and a way of thinking about the importance of issues like prostate cancer and breast cancer. And if sepsis is more important than the combination of those things, that's something that we ought to pay attention to. And so I think in a lot of situations to add emotion to our numbers, what we're doing is borrowing emotion from another area that is already well established in our minds and, and giving people the comparison. And so, so that's, that's an important technique to keep in mind for emotional when you need emotion, is borrow the emotion from a, a similar domain. That's powerful. Um, all right, so the, the third one is uh, convert to a process. Uh, we'll have one more after this. Convert to a process is, the observation is that in general, if we just add up things in one stack, there's a limit to how, how much our brains pay attention to the, the height of that stack. So if you, if you give me $10 on top of, $10, that's a big difference. Moving from 10 to 20 is a big difference. Right. Moving from 40 to 50 seems smaller psychologically. Moving from 120 to 130 is really a tiny difference. And so there's this tendency that some psychologists call psychological, psychophysical numbing, is our, our brains become numb to increases in things. And so very often we can save save the emotion by spreading it out into a process. And so, so Six Sigma quality, you may have heard of this in a business context is some manufacturing organizations have, have made a Six Sigma quality for their process. And what that means is there are only 3.4 defects per million things. And so what would that mean in practical terms? Well, Imagine making two dozen cookies and I chocolate chip cookies and every one comes up perfect. It's caramelized around the outside edges, it's soft in the middle, there's a bright number of chocolate chips there. And you do that for two dozen cookies every night and every cookie is flawless. And you do that for 37 years. That's Six Sigma quality. Not a single one with too many chips or too few chips in 37 years, not a single one that's burned or, or, or undercooked. And, and that's Six Sigma quality. And so converting to a process, if I told you 3.4 defects in a million, that just kind of blurs in your mind. But unpacking that in terms of what it means on a day-to-day -day basis and a year-to-year -year basis, 
that all of a sudden converting to a process helps you understand the magnitude of things that are otherwise hard to understand. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, by the way, I am, uh, as many people are, kicking off the new year, making smart health decisions. Chocolate chip cookies are my favorite. That might have set me back a little bit. So thank you for that example. Uh, last one, emotional measuring sticks. Emotional measuring sticks are, are kind of what we were talking about with the Kaiser Permanente example. It's like yep. we, know, we know the size of emotion that we have when we think about breast cancer. It's, a, it's an important disease. It's, it's worth donating for. It's worth doing walks for. It's worth supporting breast cancer victims and, and, and encouraging them. Um, and so if sepsis is bigger as a social issue than prostate cancer plus breast cancer combined, that's something we definitely ought to be doing as society. And, and my sense is that's something that the medical field is moving towards slowly, but it should be moving towards rapidly. So as you said at the beginning of this, your um, kind of mission in life is you want to change the way people think and approach life and make the world a better place for lack of a, a more descriptive way to describe, you know, way to, to articulate this. Um, all of your books seem to hit that uh, nail on the head for, for this book. What are you most excited about in terms of its impact on people and the, the community around us? People talk about numbers a lot and yet we're not, we're not understanding the numbers and what they're telling us. And there's, there's wonder in the world, there is truth in the world that is only conveyed by numbers. And so if we had a society that was better able to, to bring numbers to bear and to talk about them and to compare them and, and act on them and be motivated by them, we'd live in a better place and it would change our schools, it would change our business organizations, it would change society. And, and so what I hope is that if people start becoming more transparent about their numbers, people say you can lie with statistics. Well, yeah, you can lie with statistics, but it's a lot easier to lie without statistics. And so I'm a scientist. I believe that there is truth out there and some things are more true than others. And so having a toolkit for, for making numbers transparent is, is gonna to lead to better decisions and it's gonna to lead to more, more interesting world. I mean, the world is more interesting when you think of that frog jumping and you look at it and you say, well, if people could jump like that, you could dunk from the, the opposite team's free throw line. Right. <laughs> and, and that's an amazing, that's amazing observation. And it might make us think more carefully about trashing the wetlands that this frog is, is, is inhabiting. And, and so if we had a sense of the awe and wonder of the world, I think we would make a lot of decisions differently. Well, I think to your point, if, I mean, just in this uh, brief conversation, and I'm, I love numbers. I'm picturing my wife, who's a reading teacher for a long time. You know, she's not drawn to numbers, but I think both of us with using, you know, if our teachers or even if ourselves started using some of these principles, you know, the, the emotion that's driven from these principles is amazing. And the fact that you get more interested, but also you, you, I feel like it gets me closer to action. And so yeah. that's the part that excites me about the potential of this book. Yeah, I love that. I love that notion. I mean, I think most people think of numbers as dry and and inert, and yet the numbers are what drives you to act. And if you see the numbers correctly, so it seems kind of like you know, as I, I look at your career again from the outside, uh, that you know, you and the people around you basically have a Midas touch of ideas that you know turn into books that change lives. Um, when you've had to create change in your life or attack change in your life 
do you have kind of a system or have there, has there been some moments where, you know, you've had to get outside your comfort zone? Um, I'm just curious, like what tools or things you have in your life to help you attack change? Yeah. I think the single most useful thing that I found in doing research on books for a number of years now is concept and bright spots in in the switch book and the notion of bright spots is that our brains are kind of wired to, to pay attention to problems and so if we're having a global economic meltdown and our product isn't selling very well we we typically turn towards the bottom end of the distribution of salespeople, and we try to coach them and make them better and bring them up to speed and what we don't do very often is look at the people that are still selling pretty well during a global economic downturn and, and shadowing them and figuring out what are they doing that's different. And, and I think that's, the, that's definitely the way my mind works is my mind focuses on problems and tries to fix problems yep. as opposed to looking at what's working now and as a success and analyzing success. And so the same analytical skills that make you great problem solving are gonna make you great at solution scaling if you just turn your attention to the other end of the distribution. And so I, I do that constantly with myself is like, I'll get frustrated that I've wasted a day on, on something that I shouldn't have. And, and yet in trying to fix that problem, I don't think about what are, what are the characteristics of the days that I can get work done and, and kind of analyze those and, and come up with routines and procedures that embody things that have been successful for me in a more formal way. I would say that that bright spot, as I told you before we started taping, the bright spot element was one of the things that really changed my life. Because too often, like even when you win, last night was, uh, you know, it's gonna, this podcast is gonna come out, you know, later. But there's a big football game on, and uh, you know, if I were on the winning team, you know, I'd probably celebrate for a little bit, but I'd be thinking about all the ways that we may have dropped the ball and how do we get better there. And so the bright spot for me, you know, ten years ago when I read it, or maybe a little bit longer now. Uh, was something that transformed the way I approach things. And so it's interesting to know that that's also impacted you personally. Uh, are, are your books somewhat therapeutic that way for yourself? Like as you're diving into these issues, uh, does some of it, you know, feel like it, you dive in because you're so interested and you oh, hope sure. other folks are interested? Yeah. Yeah. I think what Dan and I have found and what Carl and I found is that, that we were talking about these things. Like when we were talking about math books, we, we got excited when we did the calculation about the frogs jumping and we get excited when we did the calculation about the, the two quarters at the ends of the soccer field. Right. And, and so we, we write about what we think was impressive to us. And so, so that's the advantage of having a good co-author is, is you test out things on yourself and if they work for you and they work for your co-author, that's a good sign that they're, they're going to work for other people. It's awesome. Uh, have you, uh, I was talking to a friend the other day who just is kind of stuck in a rut in life. And I would say that that could be any of us. Have you ever found where you've struggled with, uh, kind of being in a rut of just like going through the motions? And if so, what kind of systems do you have around you to help you break out of that? Or if you haven't, what kind of systems do you have in your life to keep you from those ruts? I think what I figured out is I can't, can't get out of ruts without external feedback. And so, so what I always do when I was a junior professor working on my research agenda is I would force myself to do three studies on a topic. And a typical paper would be like five studies and bound together with a common theme. But when I got to this research study point, I would take it on the road and I would consciously 
phone up friends of mine that were in other universities in different parts of the country and ask if I could give a brown bag lunch talk. And this is something academics do for entertainment during the day is they, they bring their lunch and listen to a scientific talk and make comments and question, ask questions and stuff. And so, so I would force myself to present it at least seven or eight times. And over time, it becomes clear what the right next study is or what, the, what a different twist of framing the, the research package that would enable somebody else to understand it and use it, what, what that framing would be. And so, so I think when I would get stuck with the rut, that would be the sign that I needed to go on the road and, and try it out with different, different audiences and see what kind of questions they had and what they got excited about. And, and that's impossible to do when you're by yourself. And, and technology today is, is even better because you don't even have to get on a plane to do it. <laughs> Set up a situation like this and have a brown bag lunch with virtual crowd in three different cities if you wanted to. That's awesome. Um, so uh, the, the series of questions that we ask everyone at the, um, at the end of our time together are, are pretty simple. One is we're really fascinated with the habits and disciplines of successful people. And so do you have any daily or weekly habits that you think help set you up to be the most successful version of yourself? I'm not a terribly habit, habit executing person. And, and so I think what, what does keep me on track is, is the habit of, well, one of my advisors used to say, go where the train allows, go where the terrain allows. And so if you're thinking about exploring an idea or exploring a field, there's some things that you can prove right now and some things that you can't. And so what was, what's useful to me as a day-to-day habit is when I'm with a co-author, I, I try to get try to get as much of my work done as possible and play ping pong with the other person. So I would work on a paper all night and send it to my co-author because I wanted them to wake up in the morning and see that we'd had analyses run and, and things that made progress on the paper. And so that notion of looking for what, what's a win for today and was, is really important to me. And so I wanna know that I made material progress on the most important issue for the day. And when I do that, I can relax. And in fact, Teresa Mabale is a, is a Harvard professor, has a brilliant book called The Progress Principle. And, and what she shows is that if you're predicting job satisfaction with people, it's not, the, it's not the benefits, it's not the, even the colleagues, it's not the interesting work. It's the fact that you are making progress on an issue that you care about on a day-to-day basis. And, and what managers ought to do is smooth the, smooth the turf so that the team can make progress and remove the obstacles so that the team can feel that they made progress. And when you look at, that progress principle view of the world, I think that's what keeps me, even though I don't have many routines and habits, yep. that's a challenge, it's a threshold that I have to hit every day. Well, I think that the answer I appreciate greatly because I feel like there are some folks who are on the podcast who you know, have a quick answer of, you know, it's about getting up early and getting quiet time or something late, or, um, or but there are also other folks who may not think that way or are driven that way, who again, can be phenomenally successful. And so that's, that's really refreshing to hear is just a different, different take on that. Um, my second question is, I mean, you've been the author, co-author of these really big New York times, best-selling books, life-changing books. Um, what books have really made an impact on your life or what podcasts are you listening to, or, you know, how are you consuming information that's making an influence or an impact on your life? 
either, you know, from, you know, the last 20 years or currently. Yeah. I, I'm a huge Malcolm Gladwell fan. I've read everything that he's written and, and I love, love his style of storytelling. And, and I'm also in awe of Michael Lewis for the same reason, because he, he can tell not only, I think when Gladwell tells a story, it's, it's a 20 page story. When I tell a story, it's a three page story. I can only sustain it for so long. When Malcolm Gladwell tells a story, it's a 20 page story. Michael Lewis writes a whole book on a really important issue and has beautiful scenes and characters and, and, and it helps you understand high finance in a way that you never had understood before. And that's, that's an incredible, that's incredible feat. Um, one question that we've had a lot of fun with the last few months is uh, when, you know, whether you're working out, walking around a neighborhood, driving in your car, um, music or listening to something, whether it's music or not, seems to be a part of everyone's life uh, or many people's lives. I'm just curious, you know, when you're either driving around or doing one of those activities, do you, what is on your playlist or what are you listening to? I, I listen to a lot of alternative rock, so the National is my current favorite group, um, and, and I, I confess that I've been doing a retro thing recently, and, and I, I have an excuse for this. I have an older daughter who's 18, and she, she's better at naming 70s songs than I am, um, and so, so I listen to a lot of Elton John from, from my earlier life and, and celebrate that because my daughter is actually listening to the same stuff. That's awesome. Um, all right, last question. We know we've got to wrap up here so you can get back to the number of other activities that you have. Um, what is the, the best piece of, you know, either leadership advice or uh, self-improvement advice that is on your mind or something you've come across recently that's really um, made an impact on you? I think I would go, go back to that phrase and it came from my academic advisor as, as a graduate student named Mr. Tversky. And he, he's become known as one of the founders of behavioral economics. He's a psychologist that was doing work that was so transformative of the way that we make view of how humans make decisions that it affected the economics profession as a whole. Unfortunately, he died before he could share the Nobel Prize with his co-author, Jenny Kahneman. But Amos used to say, go where the train allows. And what he meant was there are all these big ideas that we would like to tackle that he wanted to tackle about human decision-making processes. And there are some things that you knew that you couldn't prove yet. And so it, it's, it's easy for graduate students, especially to bog down in existential depression because they have these big thoughts and they're not able to show the big thoughts and, and capture them in dissertation the way that they wanted to. What Tversky would say is go where the train allows, make progress that day. If you know an experiment that needs to be run, run the experiment. And if you don't know how to analyze the data, we'll phone somebody up and ask them, how do you analyze this data? And so going where the train allows is, is a commitment to making progress, forward progress in whatever way you can with the idea that there is a big, bigger picture there. And you may know things that you're not able to prove yet, but if, if the train continues to evolve and open up, you're gonna, you're gonna get there eventually. That's great. Well. Um, this has been an awesome, awesome 15 minutes. I mean, it's something you're someone I have, uh, only dreamed of getting to talk to one day, you know, as of 10 years ago, when I first got, a, got exposed to your work, uh, in a real way. Um, I can't thank you enough for just the work that you've done in terms of co-authoring books, but also your time here, sharing your head and your heart with us. Uh, it's been a huge blessing and 
I'm excited to read your new book. When is it out? Do you know? I, I, it's I, out today. It's out we were, today? We were talking, yeah. <laughs> As we're, I mean, I signed up for the pre-order, but I wasn't sure when I was going to be able to, to pick it up. So today, that's awesome. So, so I, hope, I hope you enjoy it. I absolutely will. Um, and I will actually reach out to you after I read it and let you know how it's impacted my life. So um, thank you for your time. Thank you for uh, your courage to go out and share your ideas with the world, to let them, uh, you know, I, th- I think I would say you're making a massive impact in so many lives. But I'm sure sometimes as an author, you can only focus on the critique. So I just want to encourage you to continue to do what you do and um, keep sharing your thoughts with the world. So thank you. Thank you. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcast on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.